0: Welcome back to another episode of the Brown Body Podcast. Season 5 is sponsored by IsoFit, my go-to for all things isometric training. More on IsoFit, you can click the link in the description below. Today I'm joined by Dr. Justin Clifford. And Justin and I are going to be diving into the deadlift. So we talk about a lot of different deadlift principles and considerations for those who might get injured during the deadlift. So we talk about back pain, we talk about Blowing a bicep while deadlifting. We talk about different strategies around deadlift setup. We talk about so many different things. And I think this is a really great episode for any clinician or coach out there who works with people who deadlift a lot, who want to know more, or for someone who's very passionate about lifting heavy lifting heavy stuff and wants to learn more about, you know, the other side of it, the rehab side and that sort of thing. So great listen today. Enjoy. Justin, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's a good opportunity. Appreciate for you having people, me on. Yeah, for people who might not be familiar with you or, you know, maybe they haven't seen you on Instagram before, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you do? I
1: don't know about amazing things, but um, I'm I'm Dr. Justin Clifford. I'm a physical therapist.
0: Um, I
1: am a board-certified specialist in both orthopedic PT as well as sports PT, and I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist as well. I've spent the last six and a half years working with uh, tactical athlete populations, currently working with uh, some special warfare trainees uh, in, a, in a military setting. So with that said, like my, my caveat for this this whole podcast is that anything that I say during this reflects my own opinions and does not reflect the official position or policy of the Department of Defense or any branch of the US government. They are strictly my own. Within that, I've had I've been competing in strength sports for, oh, geez, coming up on 15 years now. Um, started out with powerlifting, moved over to some strongman, island Games, some grip strength events. Still actively compete where I can. You know, life gets in the way sometimes, but uh, still trying to train specifically for competitions when I can get them. A little bit of a deadlift specialist in that regard. Um, that's something that has, I would say, somewhat come naturally to me, but I've also, you know, done lots of stupid things. and a lot of cre- hurt myself in a lot of creative ways, um, uh, and, and managed to still come back and, and compete at relatively high levels for an amateur. That's uh, what I'm bringing to the table.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I was going to say, I noticed your Instagram handle is deadlift therapy. Um, so I assume that you were kind of the deadlift yep. guy, uh, a deadlift guy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that Instagram is, is really just my training log. Like I don't, I don't spell training uh i don't have a brand i don't have, i don't do any marketing or anything like that um it's really just just me in my garage or or at the gym doing stuff but yeah deadlift is something that is, is very much you know very near and dear to my heart um and i've grown a lot of my clinical practice around being able to get people deadlifting or training the deadlift in a way that is meaningful for them it's not one of those things that you need to you know, everybody has to deadlift in this specific way every single time. Like ultimately like the deadlift is a fundamental movement, right? If you bend over and pick up your shoes, you need to be able to deadlift in some fashion, even if it's just the weight of a shoe, right. Or just your body, the the fundamentals of, of being able to bend over hip hinge, do a little bit of a squat, all of those things are just part of human existence. And so you know, my attitude, my approach to the deadlift is that the barrier for entry should be very, very low. Um. You know, I've even had people who are wheelchair bound do some kind of deadlift pattern um, or some kind of hinge pattern. And that by itself can be very empowering. So a lot of fear about the deadlift, um, run into plenty of cases where people just really, they get really, really apprehensive about it. Um, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Like I, I get it. Cause I've, I've hurt myself deadlifting before The like deadlift. You can just let go, <laughs> Like you get pinned under a squat. You get pinned under, under a bench press. Uh, you know this. You have to have a pretty solid escape strategy uh, in order to in order to get out of that deadlift. You just let go, so you're not getting stapled to the ground or pinned to the bench. Um, so I try to dispel those myths with my patients as well as with my athletes. Um, but yeah, I like picking up heavy crap.
0: <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. There's always a lot of fear and apprehension around the. Uh, surrounding the deadlift, I feel like everyone notes somebody who, you know, blew out their back, so to speak, or whatever, while doing the deadlift, but yeah. to, your, to your point, it's something that everyone has to do, everyone has to pick something up from the floor, um, regardless yeah. of who you are, how old you are, it's essential to be able to do that. And it's really nice to be able to do that with higher loads, or varied yeah. speeds. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different considerations that go into the concept of picking something off the floor. And one of the ones that I've played around with the most is just how I set up for the deadlift. Um, I, I, I use the slightly controversial wider stance, more sumo stance, which some people hate. Um, but I found that seems to work really, really well for me. Um, as far as the setups, setups and uh, styles go for the deadlift, Justin, what kind of approaches do you see people taking most commonly?
1: Um, you know, I, honestly, I think you need to fit the setup
0: to the, to the
1: task, right? So the, if my task is to lift maximum weight with a barbell, I'm gonna find a position that is most efficient for the person to do that. If my task is to move a big, heavy rock I'm going to have to take that little bit of wider stance. I'm going to have to get underneath it. And I'm, I'm going to end up rounding a bit more at the bottom just so they can get underneath that load, right? It's going to look more like a like an stone pick or a sandbag pick. Um, those count as a deadlift, as far as I'm concerned. Um, if it's a trap bar deadlift, people tend to gravitate more towards a little bit more of an upright posture with their hands um, occupying the same plane as their shins, right? So they can't, you know, with a straight bar, you can't get that bar Behind your uh, behind your shins, right there with the trap bar, you can you can get the center of mass back there. So people tend to stay a little bit more upright, a little bit more on the squat side of the continuum. Um, and for most of my most of my people that I'm training right now, that uh, the trap bar deadlift is is actually part of a part of an official fitness test, right? And we use a straight bar mostly as a as a training tool for that. Um, You know that that i don't want to be like you know the pt who says like hey it depends but you know it it depends
0: i think you're right about that it really does because you know to my point from earlier i really like a wider position with my deadlift but that's probably Mm -hmm. not going to fly in the strongman setting would it
1: it might um so the rules in strongman right you just can't have your hands inside your legs right so you can't do a sumo stance where your your knees are wider than your arms So when you lock out the weight or the bottom of the weight, like your hands just have to be outside your legs. Um, And so you'll you'll see some strong men, especially like really tall guys, like Jerry Pritchett does this. uh, Brian Shaw does this. It looks a little bit more natural on their frames, but they take a very, quite quite a wide stance. Their grip is just also wide. Um, And that actually kind of mimics a little bit of that stone and that sandbag pick off the floor. And if that's where your mechanics are good, that's where your mechanics are good. You train it, you get strong in that position and it's fine. Um, you just can't have the hands inside the legs in the case of strongman. Right. If Where... you're training powerlifting, if you're training powerlifting and like the sumo deadlift is the most efficient way for you to lift the most weight within the rule set that you have, okay, you know, people have feelings about sumo versus conventional. Just, you know, fit the task, right? The task says it's legal. You know, and then that, there's, uh, there's only so much you can uh, whine and complain about that before you have to face reality that it is a legal lift. I will say that with the sumo position, uh, it can sometimes be a little bit harder to get through the full lockout with a mixed grip, right? If you've got one arm supinated, um, it's depending on the width of your torso and the carrying angle of your elbow, you might have a hard time getting your hips through your arms to get to a lockout. Um, but that can also be true if you're lifting conventional and you've got a little bit of a wider stance that way, you got to clear the, the, the knee past the elbow off the bottom without shifting your weight. So stuff can get a little bit weird again, you're fitting the deadlift to the constraints or to the task that you have in front of you.
0: Yeah, I love that point that you keep coming back to about fitting the deadlift to what you need to do. Um, Because you mentioned a couple times like the Atlas stones. And I've noticed when I watch guys do that, their spine almost always flexes and bends. And I've seen a few Instagram gurus who say that's a very bad thing and the spine should never flex during a deadlift. But You know, we have people doing that with four or five hundred pounds and they're okay. They're safe. Um, So, you know, it's one of those things you mentioned deadlift mechanics. I feel like it's very difficult to have a conversation about deadlift mechanics because it can vary so widely from person to person. And there's not necessarily one like straight right or wrong way to do it you know, it's okay to have a little spine flexion. It's okay to be in a more neutral spine position. As long as the bar comes from the ground and you're safe doing it, I feel like that's what we're after at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it's ultimately letting the person be successful, right? Um, whether it's in a clinical setting or in a performance setting, being able to be successful is the name of the game. Like you want to be able to accomplish the task, whether the task is training something up so you can build resilience through the back and through the hips or if it's picking up a heavy-ass stone and and loading it over a a bar or something like that. with I will say, going back to the the Atlas stone piece, typically you'll see that as a two-phase lift, though. You won't see people go from a pick straight to lockout in one piece. You'll see them kind of pick it up. They're kind of hunched over. You won't really see the hip drive come through until they've repositioned and kind of settled down on top of it. Um, And so it's a little bit different than like a straight deadlift where you don't want that gap in the middle. where you're just pulling straight through to lockout. The The key point is that you have to train what you intend to perform, right? So if you're just doing strict deadlifts, if you're saying super strict with your, you know, you just even just doing RDLs, um, you can build a lot of strength with that. It's a great lift, but the carryover into doing something like a stone lift where you have these more awkward positions, or if you're in a, a field setting and you've got, you know, a, a litter with, you know, 300 pound dude plus his gear on there, and you've got to get that out of, you've got you've to gotta move that litter potentially under fire. The last thing I want you thinking about is your back position, right? I'd rather that you be safe and, and be able to accomplish your job. With the mechanics piece, the body is really good at figuring out where it's strong. So long as you have the experience and the repetitions to do so. If you are doing something that is completely novel with high loads, yeah, the risk goes up, right? If you're doing something where, hey, I've been in this position before, I know I can move and I've got, these degrees that I, you know, these degrees of freedom that I can play with or that I can manipulate in order to get the job done because I've done it thousands of times, then yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be solid, right? Chaos always has a say, but, um, you're more likely to be successful if you've explored a little bit to the right and to the left of what your normal training looks like. As far as coming back to like the neutral spine piece, like if we actually like look at the research on that, even a neutral spine, if we can, if what looks to be a neutral spine to the coach might have significant degrees of lumbar flexion going on at the bottom of the rep in both the squat and the deadlift. And it's not something that we need to be worried about so long as it allows the person to experience success. Right? So that is, we, we don't actually have any literature showing that like lumbar rounding is inherently more dangerous than keeping a quote unquote neutral spine during a lift. We don't have that research yet. It may be that there's a factor there, but so far the research hasn't really shown it when we look at like workers compensation you know we look at like the workers education stuff where we're saying hey lift with your legs not with your back do a squat lift instead of a instead of a you know a bending over at the waist like those don't actually decrease injury rates in the workplace <laughs> Like those interventions don't don't do anything to injury rates um so we have to appreciate that if we can let the body self-organize and we can give it enough experience and enough exposure so that it can adapt to some of the loads that it experiences during those uh during those movements good things happen where we run into problems is when we try to constrain people into moving a specific way without the context for what the goal is right and this is where you see a lot of uh you know fitness oriented pts even struggle is you know they've got this this idea in their mind of what a deadlift should look like and what cues they should give a person and when to, you know, back people off. And then what ends up happening is they coach them in the clinic and they've got like 15 different cues that they're giving the patient. They go turn the patient loose. How many of those is the patient actually thinking about how much, how many are they able to remember? It's going to be a unicorn of a patient that can actually execute that independently. I need to find a way that I can let that patient experience or let that athlete experience success without me there right with without my eyes on them without me yelling at them with every single rep that they're doing if i can't do that i have failed by my initial evaluation
0: no i completely agree because ultimately at the end of the day we're trying to get people back to what they want to do without us there we don't want to teach dependency and to your point about queuing if i give 15 to 20 different cues you know you know pull the bar back click the bar drive the um, feed out like so many different things to think about, it just becomes unnatural. Um, you know, I occasionally lift with a buddy of ours, Greg, and I am nowhere near as proficient in the deadlift as he is. And instead of queuing, he literally looks at me and just says, Dan, just lift a freaking bar already. And that seems to be all I need. Honestly, like, yeah. 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 It's the bar. Re- Results oriented cues. It's great. Sometimes we can certainly over cue. I think that there's a time and a place. To cue someone, but Absolutely. I don't think that we need. I don't think we should get lost in the sauce there. I think we should focus yep. on simplest form of cueing as we can. That um, that way, someone can actually remember it and take it with them instead of over queuing and over correcting.
1: One hundred percent. You know, bringing this to another aspect of, of PT or coaching or training that that people run into. Like if I am, if I have somebody who's coming to me for a running related injury, okay, and I see a ton of them right now. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got, uh, you know, some, some triage that I do with my specific population to make sure that it's not, you know, certain things that are a, a little bit more, uh, dangerous than others. If I'm having to coach somebody on running, I'm not going to sit back in chair and say, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to shift all of your weight over to one foot. You're going to pick up your other foot. You're going to flex your hip a little bit and advance the leg of the with, that has the hip flex. You're going to place that heel firmly on the ground. And then at the same time, coordinate your weight shift over to the other side so that you can push off with the toe on leg. you're not going to do that crap you're just going to say hey let me see your run based on what you see okay if you're going to go through your going to go through your test you're going to maybe make some modifications and see if you can kind of chase down or modify your asterisk sign right your concordance sign whatever the whatever their their chief complaint is that you're able to reproduce in the clinic with the deadlift people will just jump right to coaching you know they'll get them up off the table maybe they do a manual exam and they'll get them up off the table and say okay we're let's let's go look at your deadlift but instead of looking at their deadlift they just start coaching them right away i mean the body is great at figuring out how to get stuff done so what i do in my in my case is i have a kettlebell sitting there next to my table and i say okay all that stuff looked great let's look at you know okay your your bodyweight squat looks good you can bend bending forward and touching your toes looks okay you know might be painful might be not it's like okay pick up that kettlebell show me a goblet squat right? Assuming that they're seeming for a deadlift, right? Squat might be a little bit lower threat and the the kettlebell is lighter than an empty barbell, right? It's like, just pick up that kettlebell. Let me see your squat. I'm interested in seeing how they do the goblet squat, but I'm also interested to see just how do they pick up the kettlebell without me saying like, Hey, this is a deadlift. They're distracted. This is a squat, now, but I've got to pick this weight up first. And they're going to tell me just by how they do it, how they're comfortable moving to get something up off the floor. That is Tremendously valuable information right there. Once I remove the context of like, hey, let's let's do a deadlift, then people are just saying, hey, okay, I'm just going to pick this up. Kind of divorcing the brain from the task a little bit uh, or from the label of the task can give you a lot of information uh, and, and serve as a really good starting point.
0: No, definitely. I love that. And to the point from earlier, this allows you to, if you're going to cue or coach a deadlift at all, it allows you to cue it in a way that's specific to the patient instead of specific to how you think the deadlift should be done. Because what works for you is not going to work for every person that comes into your clinic. You know, everyone's built a little differently. Everyone has different preferences. And I think training age and experience really comes in here as well, especially the powerlifting and strongman side, like Um, for example, if you came into my clinic and you're like, Hey, Dan, you know, I need some work with my deadlift. You know, if you've deadlifted the same way for 15 years and I go in and try and change how you deadlift, you're probably not going to stick with me that long because that's not what you want. You don't want to shift styles from what worked for you for decades that allow you to allowed you to lift heavier weights than I can, um, into something completely, you know, that you're green in and unseen, um, you know, uncharted territory with.
1: And, you know, with those people who do have more training history, if they pick up the kettlebell, okay, it looks fine. They're able to do a goblet squat. They're able to do a hinge or whatever. And they are, they do have some history with strength training. It's like, okay, that looked fine. We saw X, Y, Z. Maybe, you know, if you had symptoms with it, maybe we do a modification that just involves the weight that we were just handling. If we didn't, you know, if, if I haven't reproduced your symptoms on exam, have I really completed the exam? I would, I would say the answer is no. Right. So then I'm going to go out into the gym. And I say, okay, let's see what your actual deadlift looks like at that point. I might not do that with somebody who's fearful about the idea of deadlifting. If somebody if a strength athlete is coming to me, they're not going to be fearful about deadlifting by itself, right? They might be apprehensive about getting re-injured, but they're not going to be like, Holy crap, the deadlift is going to, you know, make my spine explode through my throat. Right. Um and so I can take them out into the gym and say, Hey, okay, show me how you normally deadlift, and then we can play from there. You know, if I've got somebody who comes in and and their, their deadlift, you know, they hurt themselves like a 400-pound deadlift, and I only load 135 on the bar. I also haven't looked at their deadlift. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's the same as putting a, a runner on, a, on an elliptical. <laughs> the the load the loads are just, it's close. It's not quite there. It's not quite what you want. So I need to get them to a point where I can reproduce their symptoms in some fashion, and that might wait until the second or third session, depending on how acute they are and how reactive they are. But I do need to actually look at the task that they want to get back to doing. We, we talk about all of these these test clusters and these models and the you know, functional movement screen or whatever. And there is there is no test that has greater um, validity than actually doing the task every test every model is a lie it is an approximation at best that you use to try to inform your decision making but it is not the thing if you can get them doing the thing as close as possible that's going to inform your decision making much more than a manual muscle test on the table
0: i feel like i need you to say that again and say it like 10 times louder because i've noticed this trend lately um not just when it comes to the deadlift but across pt where A lot of people are living and dying by certain clusters or certain numbers um that they accumulate like from like force plates or from like strength testing like you know they put objective number numbers to things and not to say that's not great information but they forget to look at the obvious thing of hey this is what they need to do let's actually look at them doing it instead we just choose to you know throw someone on the force plates and do a counter movement jump because that's what the research says. And research is great, research is important, but at the end of the day, to your point, the most important thing, um, if we're trying to get someone back to a specific task is how are they doing with that task? And did they get to the level of function that we're trying to get them to? Yes or no?
1: Exactly. And, And that's one thing that, that's one of my big beefs that I have with a lot of the injury prevention efforts that are going on throughout the industry. You know, if you look at the FMS, initially build as a screen to predict who is more at risk for, for injury with, with training to see if they're appropriate to begin training. And, and we saw that the research on that just really didn't pan out. It has no predictive value. That's not to say that it's not a good test battery to go through because you can rule out some stuff that you're, you can say, okay, I'm not interested in ankle mobility, right? You know, I think the SFMA is a little bit more applicable in a clinical setting because it's not immediately invalid. Once somebody has pain, the SFMA allows for pain. If we're talking about injury stuff, like when does injury happen? What, like, Fundamentally injury happens when load exceeds the capacity of some structure or system, and therefore the system is compromised or the, the structure is compromised because the load exceeds it. So what good is an unloaded test in talking about injury? Yeah, it's useless. It's, it lacks face validity completely. Similarly, I've seen people trying to sell force plate measures that are supposed to infer aerobic performance, like. It doesn't even make sense right now that isn't to say that these objective measures aren't bad. You need them at some point you, if you want to be objective about your progress and how, and what kind of differences you're making, especially when you're dealing with something complicated, like a compound lift, you want to make sure that you don't have individual pieces lagging behind. Right? So if I would need to test knee extension torque that can be a very important component for a whole lot of conditions that i can rehab about the lower extremity and including the squat and the deadlift compound movements it's very easy to compensate it's very easy to cheat away from stuff the body's great at self-organizing and finding where it's strong and if it feels like hey one side isn't strong it's going to find another way to get the job done well meanwhile you may have you may have you know come up with a halfway solution but you haven't actually you might not have actually addressed any impairments um you might not have actually fixed the root cause of why that compensation is happening and it might not be visually obvious. Right. And so I think think some of the objective testing is very, very important, but you have to make sure that objective test is relevant to what you're trying to do. There, there are very few cases where I'm going to make discharge decisions on an unloaded test or a test that is irrelevant to the, com- the chief complaint or the fun- the prior level of function that my patient needs to get back to, right? If it's if it's separated from what the patient needs and the breakdown of those specific tasks, like somebody's coming to me for, for, you know, low back pain off, off a deadlift, I'm probably not gonna be doing goniometry on their neck as a discharge criteria, you know? It, you, just, you just have to make sure that it's, it's relevant and it, it freaking makes sense. And for the most part, we get so caught up in these models or in these clusters, we have to really take a step back and get back to first principles and make sure that you know, this, this, this actually is meaningful.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And to your point, you know, ultimately, our goal is to get someone back to where they were before. And in the terms of deadlifting, you know, if someone's prior level of function was someone like you or Greg, we've got to get you back to deadlifting 7, 800, 850 pounds, potentially. That's our prior level of function. That's our end goal. When you come in day one, you might not be there. You might be only lifting, you know, say 200 pounds pain-free or 300 pounds pain-free. So we have to bridge the gap between where you are on day one and where you need to be on, you know, our final day. And I think that's another area where I think some people recognize the end goal and some people recognize where someone's at on day one, but they struggle with the progression back to that end goal. And they, I think a lot of people struggle with taking things from step one to step 100 and kind of filling in the the steps along the, the way in the in between, if that makes sense. And, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it from the deadlift standpoint. And I think it's going to vary a lot based on what your exam showed you, right? Like if someone's having pain specifically with the top half or more like the lockout type position that way, Maybe then I focus more on you know exercises that target the top half of the deadlift, like maybe a RDL type thing, or maybe they're having more issues with the lower half of the deadlift. In which case, now I have to focus on the lower half of the lift instead of the top half. Um, and I think this is an area where you know uh, position-specific isometrics can really become a great topic for. The rehab. And again, this is something I see overlooked because isometrics are not cool and sexy like a lot of other exercises on Instagram. But if I can literally set a rack to the height that someone's having issues with and have them pull into it with an empty bar as hard as they can, they can generate a lot of force there. Isometrics have a research-backed analgesic effect. So we're actually going mm-hmm. to reduce pain. We're training this position specific to where we're having issues. Um and then, you know, if you're a force plate or you're a data nerd, you could throw force plates underneath someone's foot and get some objective measures yep. while you're here. Why not? Um, but yep. I see, I see that kind of stepwise progression from step one to step one hundred being a very common issue for people.
1: Yeah, and I would say even recent prior level of function is where they got hurt, right? Right. So we might want to we might want to change our rehab goals to exceed that. Yeah. Right. Because if prior level function was okay well you was maybe not enough right you got hurt at this level then you know maybe i should set my target a little bit higher than that that's going to depend on training age you know you get somebody who's old and crusty like me and you know you put five pounds on their deadlift and it's like well well yeah but that my pr is four years old like that's pretty dang impressive you know um that might take a couple years to get five years or five pounds past that. So, whereas somebody who, who's, who's relatively new, you're, you might have uh, or if uh, relatively younger training age, you might have, um, some lower performance or some higher performance goals that way. But, um, the, as far as the stepwise progression goes, I love the, I'd love the use of isometrics. Um, I will oftentimes introduce those within the first session, regardless of how reactive somebody is. And the intent there, the way I sell it to him is what we're trying to do is, is make sure that your brain can turn the muscle on and off and we're removing anything that is threatening, right? Like I'm, I'm, I very rarely actually have people do isometrics with the barbell. Um, it's not to say that it can't be done. It's just from a standpoint of my clinical flow, like I don't oftentimes have people in a position where they can just independently go into a rack and, uh, and, and strain up against uh, some safeties, but I'm gonna have people do various planks i'm going to have them do some loaded bridges i'm going to have them do side planks i'm going to have them do carries uh which is you know trunk isometrics and i'm going to have them do unilateral activities where they've got to stabilize isometrically in ways that don't irritate their symptoms but still strengthen or still allow them to train all those muscles that are guarding very commonly when we're dealing with the deadlift injury you know aside from you know bicep and hamstring stuff that does crop up sometimes you're mostly looking at like trunk or lumbopelvic stuff. If you can get a strong isometric with a clear relaxation after each rep, you can make a lot of headway with that. And then you can, and then you can change the posture change the position, change the load and progress from there. Um, regardless of, of what position you're at. Right. Again, you want this to be something that they can take and do independently and experience success without having to struggle beyond the, beyond just effort. Right. They shouldn't Mm -hmm. struggle to get it right. They should just struggle because they're trying hard and you can, you can really reinforce a lot of things very quickly that way. Um, So that might look like hard style planks um, is one that I use regularly, just getting people to, because most people are familiar with planks, especially in my population. You get, they've got to do pushups and so, and and planks are just a thing, right? But doing a hard style plank where you're doing a max effort contraction of the app of the, of the abs, the quads, the glutes, and the lats all at once. And it's like if you can hold this longer than ten seconds. You're doing it wrong, and you know you get some people swearing under their breath after <laughs> after you cue them up on it. But they get it really, really quick. And there's no movement happening, right? There's there's no articulation of joints. There's no stretch being, happening. There's not really any way to compensate because there's not really any movement going on. They're not holding it long enough that they're going to kickstand on something that's stronger. Um, and you can, you can use similar principles into a side plank. It doesn't work quite as well just because you don't have as much of that upper body stability uh, in the side plank. And you can do the same thing with like a, 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 either a glute bridge or a hip thrust, bilateral, or unilateral, depending on what your patient presents with. Just strong, hard contraction with a focused relaxation between reps and then adding load from there. Can you do that with a barbell in a rack? Absolutely, absolutely. I would probably not go there right away I would want to see how they how they how they handle just the just like the calisthenic isometrics first. um, See if they can generate that internal tension, and then translate that into like hinge patterns, and see where the hang ups are.
0: I like that. It's almost um, I believe it was actually Pavel who wrote the book um, Easy Strength. maybe it was Dan John. Uh, That was Dan John. That was Dan John. Um, But they break it up into a quadrant system, and it almost sounds like you start Q one as your GPP of like hey, we're going to cue hard style plank. We're going to cue basic body weight mastery and hammer that down. And once we're good there, then we'll get into the more specific stuff. But before we jump right into, you know, Q3 or Q4, let's master the basic stuff first.
1: Yes, and this isn't to say that I'm gatekeeping the hinge, right? If they right. can train the hinge, I'm gonna find a way that they can that they can train it and, and still accomplish stuff. Like I'm not saying, hey, you need to back this off and master this before you ever move on to this next right, step. Right, it, This is really about like, hey, what are our big rocks and what can we knock out right now while stuff is pissed off? Yep. That's what this is, right? We've got to respect biological timelines if there is actually tissue damage involved. We've got to allow some healing to happen. We also have to understand that the training effect Depending on the person that I'm dealing with, you know, we, we're dealing, we're going to be primarily dealing with neurological adaptation out of the gate. And then as the, as the, the tissue level stuff catches up, then we can start loading that. We can look at progressive overload and hypertrophy work and so on. I need to get them doing something simple, right? That is very trainable independently, doesn't require any special equipment, any barriers that are in the way to them being able to accomplish it is, is a problem. So the, the body weight stuff removes the majority of those barriers. I will say also that the carryover from being able to generate that internal tension, uh, and you know maybe even like developing a little bit of interoception, for we'll have good carryover into the, the more dynamic lifts as we move on. But the other thing you want to look at, you know, we all—I um, don't want to get too far ahead of myself here—but very often when we're looking at rehabbing a power lift or an Olympic lift or something like that, people will talk about okay, change the range of motion, change the load. And figure out a uh, a version that, that people are uh, able to perform. Uh, I'll step back further and look at um, like Vermeil's hierarchy. Right, you've got to look at you know training enough that you have the capacity to actually train. Right, you got to train some of that work capacity first. And then you're going to work on like the slower static stuff. You're going to start adding load to that, and then only after you have ad- gone through a load progression are you really going to start looking like playing manipulating higher speeds and reactivity uh, or reacting to dynamic loads, which doesn't come into play a ton with the deadlift, right? Because it's, it's pretty static and controlled. If you were taking somebody in like, you know, they're, their job is to throw a sandbag over a bar behind their head. Well, that's not that different of a pattern from the deadlift. It's just explosive, right? And so, you know, if you want to take it that way, uh, all the way up into a throw or like a highland games, like the weight over bar, 56 pound weight, that would be more on like the ballistic or the reactive side of, um, of the hinge pattern. So looking at it from a standpoint of like, hey, let's let's make sure we've got the work capacity here first to make sure our tissue level stuff is, is catching up. Meanwhile, we're going to work on this neurological coordination. We're going to make sure you can turn the muscles on, make sure you can turn them off and remind the brain that the world's not going to end when we do that, even when we add high loads to it. So it's, that's part of that creating safety and create, and create and letting the patient experience success.
0: Right. Create an environment for safety and success and allow things to calm down and then slowly start to build them up once you've found that entry point that you can work through. And then based on that hierarchy that you just kind of outlined there, Justin, it sounds like you like to slowly progress through the hinge pattern before you start to get like fancy and cute with it, for lack of a better way to put it, right? Like if we can get to the point where we can hinge and start to deadlift pain-free, then we need to progress that before we start to throw in 20 different variations of the deadlift.
1: Correct. Correct. I need to make sure that I am checking the big boxes. If I have identified that there is a tissue level impairment, or if there is a, you know, if there's obviously like a, a, a discrepancy between like hamstring strength on one side versus the other, like quad strength is a, is a huge one with like ACL repair. Then yeah, I'm going to have some focus stuff unilaterally on that side to help it catch up too. But once I can train something and somebody can be successful with it, I'm going to play with it. But if there's something else that they're already doing that they're successful at, that's checking that box and can be can continue to be progressed, I might just leave it. Um, a great example of that, one that I've used recently with with great effect, of you know some of these these like chronic tendinopathies can be really really cranky, and so day to day. You know, making judgment calls about how much weight you put on the bar can actually be pretty challenging to figure out like, okay, what is that, you know, what's that, what does that hamstring going to handle today is using a, a flywheel hmm. because the flywheel will provide however much resistance you put into it. And you change the flywheel mass just to really change the speed. So you can actually put quite a bit of mass on there and, you know, you could, you could move it with a couple fingers, but then it's on you to just as you go through the movement to just kind of figure out like, okay. I just need to coordinate and follow along. Okay. Now I can start exerting some weight here and I feel good. Okay. I'm going to push a little bit harder. And you can do that within, within a few sets without having to worry about how much weight is on the bar, how much force you're generating or anything like that. Um, So using something like a K box for training the the RDL in particular, in, in the case of the deadlift here is, has been a tremendous tool because you don't have to, There's always ego attached. Whether we say it or not, Like there's always ego attached to to the weight we put on the bar. You've got to make a decision about how much you load and that's going to change how that set goes. And then you've got to make the decision, okay, that was too much or that was too little or uh, I'm not feeling great today. If with the K-Box with the flywheel, it's like, okay, I've got moderate inertia in the system. I've got the belt set to the right height. Okay, I'm going to pull on it. I can follow along. Okay, Uh, this is feeling a little bit Feeling a little bit stiff, maybe this first set. Okay, that warms up. Okay, now I can really open that up, and I can maintain tension in the system, and I can push as hard as I feel. I can push, right, or I can I can back it off the, that way as well. And it gets, I guess, the best word I can think about think of for it is is it's it's empowering because it you're not tied to a number, you're not tied to making a decision about the plates. All your turn, all you're thinking about is how hard can I push and maintain the tension in the system when you're using the flywheel. Um, very, very useful tool for stuff like this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Because the deadlift being such a full body compound movement, your ability to create and maintain tension throughout the entire system is essential. Um, And if you lose that tension anywhere, that's where the injury is going to occur. To the point you mentioned before, it can be the hamstring. It's commonly the low back, but it's not always. It can be the hamstring. Um, You mentioned um, even bicep earlier too. And I've I think I've only seen that in guys who supinate instead of pronate in their grip there Um, guys who yes um, mixed grip mostly instead of like a hook grip or a traditional double overhand. Yeah. I I will say I've
1: in the the 15 years that I've been training it, I've seen one person tear their bicep with an oak where that hand was supinate or where that hand was pronated. Right. Uh, And that was, I believe, already partially torn. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I would, I, Saw that one on Instagram, I didn't see it in person. I've never seen it in person where it's happened with the overhand uh, position. Um, myself, like I actually broke my clavicle doing uh judo a couple decades back. So I actually can't supinate my left hand and still lock out that shoulder because uh, the clavicle just doesn't move around the ribs <laughs> quite the right way. So if I, if I do powerlifting, I have to do palms up in my right hand. And so you, I go to great pains to make sure that I'm like, almost hyperextending that elbow. Like I've got that tricep really, really locked in to, uh, to keep the bicep inhibited as I do that pull. But that also means that there's a little bit of asymmetry when I do train for powerlift deadlifts, where I have to make sure that I'm getting at least some volume in with the left hand supinated, but I might not be able to do that in like a high performance or like on my top sets. Um, so I, I definitely prefer to train double overhand and then throw on straps once the grip fails i'm a bit of a wuss when it comes to hook grip hook grip is fine i'm just a wuss um but uh and as a result my double overhand strength is you know pretty dang good so
0: no you uh you you bring up an interesting point it's that some of these things um at least i'm guilty of it myself i like to think we can fix everything right we're the eternal optimist if you broke your clavicle decades ago and it's still not normal I'm probably not going to magically correct that in eight to 10 visits. No, of course not. No. Um, so I need to recognize that, you know, if I'm rehabbing you to get you back to prior level of function or beyond prior level of function, I have to accept that there's certain things I'm not going to be able to change. And that's something right. that we have a very difficult time grasping, or at least I've had a difficult time grasping. It's that, you know, you have to control what you can control and accept that there are certain things that you're probably not going to get them to that point within the time constraints that you're allowed.
1: Right. So, you know, if I've got somebody who's, you know, got some chronic back issues, maybe they've had a couple disc injuries or even surgeries, and the deadlift is a priority for them, it might be that I have to take training volume away from other things that load that low back in order to in order to be able to train or rehab the deadlift and then slowly work stuff back in. I might not be able to have them on a progression for both heavy back squats and heavy deadlifts at the same time, right? I might have them training belt squats or single leg work for, for their squat pattern. Uh, or my personal favorite accessory for the deadlift is actually the front squat, being able to offload it a little bit so that I can save some of that volume for, in my case, the deadlift. So you, you do have to kind of pick your battles a little bit. You, you reach a point where the body is not going to respond well to being overloaded and you can only adapt so much we like we do like to be optimistic about it but if if we could all adapt infinitely like there'd be no ceiling to sports like the records would be broken you know constantly um and we're seeing that these records are yes they're being broken but the talent pool and and some of the uh the genetic pieces that that, that are non-modifiable uh have a have a, a very large say in that that we don't We don't often talk about because we can't do much about it. Another example for me is, you know, when I was competing in powerlifting, I haven't done powerlifting meets since, uh, since COVID kicked off. Um, but training both the straight bar back squat and the straight bar bench press in the same training cycle just blows me up. Right. It's just the way my shoulders are structured. Um, and I have never had uh, a successful training cycle where I was able to push both to the same amount. I have to focus on one or the other and then come meet time, just accept that one of them is going to be somewhat behind unless I want to hurt myself. And I've, I've done that too. So in the interim, like, can I train bench press and squat? I can train them in the same session but I'm going to be using like a Buffalo bar, right? Um, because it's going to take some stress off my shoulders and it's going to take some stress off the, uh, both in the bench and in the, uh, and in the the, uh, the squat. So that's my curvy bar day. <laughs> and then I've got a, you know, a, a straight bar day for, for deadlift and overhead press or something like that. I can, I can get away with that. But if, if my constraint is, hey, I've got a powerlifting need to prepare for, well, I can't use that fancy curvy bar. Now I'm going to have to be strategic about where I assign my training volume. That might look like a lot more uh, specialty bar work for the squat while I build at the bench press with a straight bar or vice versa. If I have a problem with the bar rolling, I might do more thick straight bar squat work and then leave the bench to something else and then you know just get a couple train a couple practice sessions in that just so that I don't accumulate too much volume that pisses everything off so long, long story short is you have to find what works for the patient and let them experience success don't try to force them into some cookie cutter and say hey stuff broke because you you did it wrong the program the rehab needs to fit the patient
0: on that point and to your point about specialty bars and equipment too um, you know, I think that if you're in a clinical setting and you're working with someone who wants to get back strongman or powerlifting or whatever it is that way, you need to have the equipment specific to what they need. And I don't just mean like yes. a barbell, like if someone's going to be competing with a deadlift bar, you need a deadlift bar because there's a difference between a standard bar and a deadlift bar, at least from what I've seen and experienced myself. I think that there's a point where specialty bars, to the point that you mentioned, And then some of the other equipment, like knowing when it's okay for someone to put a belt on versus like, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't need a belt to lift an empty barbell, um, you know, or shouldn't feel like you need a belt to lift an empty barbell, knowing when like the lifting straps or the sleeves come into play as well. You know, again, you probably shouldn't need lifting straps to lift an empty barbell. But, you know, I think lifting straps are if someone's competing with them. And it allows them to succeed in the deadlift. Like I'm all for it. You know, I might not use lifting straps myself, but if you really want to move a maximal load deadlift, I think there's a like the de- the lifting strap enters the conversation at that point because if the grip is the thing that's giving out, we need to accessorize for it.
1: There, there has to be some education as far as when those things can come into play and when right. it's reasonable. Um, I would say like for most people, having a deadlift bar in the clinic. I think it's a nicety. I don't have a deadlift bar in my clinic. Um, I have one at home because that's where I do the majority of my heavy training. You can but,
0: you can BYOB, bring your own barbell.
1: Yeah. And I have, um, you know, I, I have bought, I have, we do have like an axle bar. We've got a, you know, uh, a camber bar, safety squat bars uh, and trap bars. I will say like the difference between a straight bar and a trap bar is big enough that, doing like having a trap bar in the clinic I think is is worthwhile if you're going to be working with anybody in a tactical athlete setting because that's what they test on in the army and in the air forces on a trap bar. I think for the most part like a standard powerlifting bar is is pretty good uh and, and covers the bases. Unless you're working specifically with powerlifters and deadlift powerlifters and strongmen like unless you have unless that is like a, a large chunk of your patient population, you can probably get away without the deadlift bar. I would say having a safety squat bar is a is a very, very good idea. Um, I have certain favorites. I'm not going to plug brands right now. Um, but there there are certain ones that I absolutely abhor and there there are ones that work very, very well. but uh, having a safety squat bar, having a cambered bar, like a, a buffalo bar of some kind uh, is also nice because it kind of you get into that middle ground of you know between a straight bar and a safety squat bar. Um, having some way to perform belt squats, and I'm not talking about like the short lever, uh like belt squat thing where you put a peg on it like i would rather use a landmine just because the the levers on those are just god awful they're so short like it's going to push you forward and back like, bad things are going to happen so having some way to, to load up a belt squat in a reasonable way is is good um and then just having an assortment of other ways to load things right so whether that's kettlebells if you're dealing with a lot of strong men and you you need to train heavy heavier carries than what a kettlebell will, will allow right the kettlebell mass like it hits the legs or something like that having some some cheap farmer's handles uh are a good option there to make sure that your surface is your surface and your plates and whatever you're loading them with is appropriate um and then i'm i mean a, a flywheel trainer is something something like the k box it's the only one that's the only one that i've uh used i don't know anything about their competitors so something like that i think is if you if you know if you have people who know how to use it it could be very very helpful as well
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And, um, on the accessory point too, I've certainly learned a lot recently from Greg about things like belts and suits that I knew nothing Mm -hmm. about six months ago. And I was like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I wear a lifting belt sometimes, but there's a difference between one lifting belt and the next, like, you know, just because you have a belt doesn't mean it, first off, it might not even be the right belt for you. Like uh mine was not really doing anything for me i thought it was but it was very much a placebo effect and then once i tried something a little bit thicker i was like wow i actually i I feel a difference here so looking at you know things like belt width um and just the overall type of belt like mine was a cheap 40 dollar belt from amazon and i'll admit that i you know just kind of bought it because i thought it was what i needed but um You know, I just ordered a new Elite FTS lever belt last night that I'm very excited to get in. Um, I think these are things, too, that, you know, again, it's not always plugged in PT school. I'm not going to throw stones at glass houses. I don't think PT school can cover everything. No. I think if you really want to help someone get back to deadlifting, understanding things like where the belt comes in or how the suit plays a role in the deadlift is certainly like an essential element to it. Um, and not for everyone, but if you're working with the higher level powerlifting strongman guys, such as, you know, yourself or Greg, like there is a time and a place for those things.
1: Absolutely. And I would say the patient is going to bring that to you. Yes. Right. So if the patient already has a belt, that's when you, you incorporate it and you bring in the, uh, the education and the training on it. If they don't have a belt, but getting into something like this is in their, their goals, then that's when you can, you know, you can go through some education, some coaching as you, as you train them up. But I would say even like using the belt in a squat is different than using the belt in the deadlift, right? The squat and the bench press are unique uh, or different from the deadlift in the sense that you start at the top of the rep and you allow the eccentric to build tension throughout the body. And if you're doing it right, it's like coiling a spring. And then when you stand up, you go through the concentric, that spring is unloading. And so you're actually setting up at the mechanically strongest part of the lift and trying to maintain that tension as you, as you lower the weight and then return back to that lockout with, and, and the belt in the squat helps that almost, I would say more naturally than it does in the deadlift Uh, because in the deadlift, you start at the mechanically weakest point in the lift, almost depending on your leg length and, and where that, that bar is relative to your, uh, relative to your hips there. But, um, You don't have any tension on your body when you're standing in front of a deadlift bar until you wedge yourself underneath it, right? You grab into that bar and then now you have to generate that same kind of tension, pulling yourself down into that bar as though the bar lowered you there. This is where being able to coach somebody on using a belt at the top of that rep to pack down into it as they get set up, as they get into position. And that changes even more once you're wearing a squat suit. Um, a single-ply suit is going to be different than a multi-ply suit where you can really lock in the strap position. Um, I've had single-ply suits that fight me at the top of the rep because my, in order to get to the bar, like my shoulders slipped forward under the straps. That was the only way my, my arms could get far enough down to get to the bar. And then now when lockout came, well, those straps are pulling my shoulders forward instead of helping pull them back. A multi-ply suit or with one of the adjustable straps is going to uh, mitigate that somewhat. But all of those all of those things come into play but understanding also that you can just drop the deadlift <laughs> should be should be a comfort for anybody who's setting up with that stuff like the, the best cue that i that I ever got from any of my training partners or my brother when my brother you know, started power, training powerlifting with me he still does quite a bit of coaching with it um you know the weight's coming up right it's coming up no matter what but at the same time I can still let go <laughs> right like I don't I don't have to hold on to that and, and let it staple me to the ground like I can I can let it go and it'll be it's okay if the bar hits the ground for a second that said going back to the setup piece where you have to generate that tension at the top of the rep I'm a big advocate for touch and go reps um, that's something we haven't talked about yet but I am a I very much prefer when I can to train with a touch and go rep that doesn't mean I'm like bouncing it off the floor or anything like that but if I did the work to get it get the weight up we know that eccentrics are also an effective training tool. I'm going to get some benefit out of it by controlling that weight back down to the ground. And from a standpoint of time under tension, you know, and, and accumulating more volume, like the first rep is the one that mattered anyway. I'm just going if, to, if I can do touch and go and the, the range of motion is meaningful. You know, if I've got, if I've got like pre sumo, uh, proportions and you know, the, the bar is moving like three inches as you're doing touch and go. Okay. You, you know, maybe play with touch and go unconventional. Maybe that's a, a better statement there. I want to be able to feel the bar pulling me into the correct position at the bottom and then standing back up with that. I want to grease that groove. And I feel like that has helped my setup more than anything, honestly, is, is doing touch and go reps and then being able to set the bar down quietly in a position where I could have just ripped it up off the floor again. Um, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when people just like drop every single rep that they do on the, on the deadlift or they say like, hey, if you don't lift it from a, complete dead stop it's not a deadlift anymore it's like yeah well we still call an rdl an rdl and that will, well, so half the time people just do those out of the rack anyway like if the bar even never touches the ground so i don't know what you're smoking um and i don't care because it, it's the, the label doesn't matter that much so long it, the label doesn't matter as much as the intent of the exercise and if the intent of the exercise is to train muscles and patterns that are geared towards what i want to build then, I, then okay call it what you want the name is not the thing either right the name is also a lie Right. It's just semantics and, you know, anecdotally, and I'm I'm framing this specifically as anecdote. My experience has been that the people who exclusively drop their deadlifts tend to be tend to have a little bit higher injury rates on the deadlift. You know, if we go back to the mechanics of injury, typically the load exceeds, right. Always the load exceeds the capacity of the tissue and in a muscular setting, that's going to involve some kind of eccentric phase before the failure actually occurs. So if you can't control the eccentric, then you might run into some problems where either the muscle doesn't give way or you don't have the resilience in that tissue to withstand a lengthening under load. Just in general, like eccentrics are kind of a good idea just to, eccentrics within the pattern that you need to use the muscle uh, should be something that you're training. If you're doing concentric only, you might be missing the boat on some stuff.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the force you generate in the muscle is higher during the eccentric part of the lift anyways. So
1: yeah, and lowering it should be safer than picking it up. Should be.
0: Yeah. And if my goal is to get stronger in my muscle speaking units of force, so I want the muscle to produce more force, then I should probably train the portion of the lift that produces the most force instead of you know, instead of just exclusively missing that portion. Um, So I certainly think that's a very great element. I like your point on the touch and go deadlift. And um, ultimately, I think that's a great, like kind of getting back towards like end stage rehab. Like, you know, if someone comes into me day one, they're super flared up and they can't, they can't pick the bar off the ground even without pain. And, you know, we get close to what we're going to consider like discharge from PT and they're now doing pain-free touch and go reps with, you know, a pretty good weight for what they're trying to get back to. That to me is, you know, a sign that we've moved in the right direction. And there's like a good green flag of not only have we progressed, but maybe we've progressed beyond where they were before to your point from earlier, you know, <clears throat> progressing beyond prior level of function might not look like them setting a 50 pound deadlift PR. You know, if you're doing right. 855 pounds today, I'm probably not going to magically get you to 900 in four to six weeks. But, um, you know, if I could get you pain free and oh, by the way, you know, we've never touch and goed 495 for more than five and we just did 495 for eight, then I'll count that as a major win. You know, wins do yeah. not always look like PRs. Wins look like sometimes we do things that, you know, we didn't do previously and we just did them for more reps or easier, like lower RPE. We didn't touch on RPE today, but, you know, I think RPE as it relates to certain weights lifted can also be a nice variable to throw in there as well.
1: It can with experienced lifters. Um, I think I think the the latest research shows that most people undershoot it, like they mm-hmm. underestimate uh, or they, I'm sorry, they overestimate their um uh, their RPE, right? So they're they underestimate their, the loads that they can actually lift with that. So if you have somebody who's experienced using RPE that can be useful. One other piece that I wanted to, to bring up and make sure that we at least addressed in some fashion was just, it's taking somebody clinically through the pattern, through the the, the process of rehabbing their deadlift. You need to be aware of accommodating resistance hmm. and the, the bands are cheap, right? And being able to set up a banded deadlift in a way that, you know, the patient can shove the bands into their bag and take it to the gym with them. Right. But if you, especially if you've got somebody who's got a lot of pain just off the floor of the deadlift, maybe you've shortened the range of motion, you know, okay, block holes are doing okay. you lower the weight down a little bit and you increase the range of motion a little bit for the next progression. Um, Bands are a really good way to bridge that gap because you can have less weight on the bar at the, at, or less effective weight in the patient's hands at the bottom of the rep, more weight at the top of the rep. And that just kind of naturally fits where the body is stronger. And those bands are super duper cheap, right? You can, not, not as cheap as TheraBand, right? But you, you're not, hopefully not using TheraBand with these patients anyway. <laughs> um, but you can you can buy short bands from uh, from a number of retailers and, and just incredibly underrated tool. Chains, from a clinical standpoint, I mean, chains, chains just look badass. <laughs> but they're they're also really loud uh, and, and quite expensive. So depending on your clinical setting, it might not be the best choice. Um, but I will say that looking into a accommod- met- methods for incorporating accommodating resistance into your rehab programs can be very, very useful to, to bridge some of those more difficult gaps where you're having a difficulty progressing load or progressing range of motion and just getting some exposure into those places where things are a little bit less comfortable. Uh, also a great way to scatter the training load a little bit so which is what kind of what conjugate tries to do so you don't you're not overloading the same thing all the time but you're still training at a high level yeah that's about all i wanted to say on accommodating resistance all that we realistically have time for anyway
0: yeah no um th- that's definitely a rabbit hole and there's so many other things that we could probably spend 10 hours talking about is we're really just <laughs> scratching the surface when it comes to the deadlift is you know i know a lot of people look at it like oh it's just a simple compound movement but there's way more than meets the eye to it I thought I knew a decent amount about the deadlifting, uh, you know, the deadlift when I graduated school, and a year and a half later, I realized I know a lot less than I thought I did, and I have a ton to learn myself, so there's a lot to it. There's a lot that we threw out there today, but I feel like there's so much more, and for that, I feel like people should probably follow you on Instagram and maybe even send you a DM if they have questions, Justin uh you're at
1: i I mean they can yeah my profile is private so you'll have to you'll have to send send me a friend request in order to uh to see any of my stuff it's really just training information like just my training log yeah i'm not posting it how to's or anything like that but but yeah people can message me if they have questions that's fine
0: yeah i mean i I was gonna make a joke about you being more of a myspace generation guy but
1: (laughs) yeah i learned i learned html and css that way uh (laughs) back back in the day so
0: awesome
1: i haven't haven't used that in a hot minute
0: yeah, no. um, But yeah, definitely think that there could easily be a part two to this. We could expand this conversation so much more. We really just scratched the surface. But hopefully, I think this gets the point across that the goal of, you know, rehabbing someone from a deadlift injury is to get them back where they want to, but keeping specific things in mind, right? You know, not just using your one size fits all approach of this is how you deadlift, but adapting what you do to the person in front of you uh, with this specific lift.
1: Yes, you have to get back to the principle that the patient or the patient or the client has to be successful when they're not in front of you. And you do not want to put any additional barriers onto that. You want to find a way that they can be successful with some activity that is going to provide enough challenge that they can push themselves, experience success and not set themselves back. You need to create. You need to find that find where that patient is before you can move towards the end state. You need to find where your starting point, point. Um, and that should not be overcomplicated. Stick to your first principles. Don't be afraid of progression. Don't throw so much at a patient that they can't.
0: Yeah. No. Definitely. Great points, Justin. I really appreciate your time and everything you shared with us today about the uh, about the deadlift. There, it was very informative, and I certainly learned a lot. Thank you again for your time and everything that you shared. Yeah, thank
1: you, Dan. Uh, and hopefully, like part two, maybe we get a chance to talk about like specific deadlift accessories and uh, specific regressions that we could go through. Because we just talked really about principles today, but it was a, it was fun. It's a good time. Thanks for having me. On.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way, we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.